0: I want to begin this morning by talking about the virtues of compromise. Sounds like something pastors might get fired over. The virtues of compromise. I want to talk about compromise, but let's first talk about the virtues of compromise. I think we've done something like this before, but it's helpful to think about if you're going to stay married, if you're married um, or have a good marriage, you're probably going to learn how to compromise. Compromise. If you are gonna be a good friend, or have any friends, <laughs> you're probably gonna learn how to appropriately compromise. Uh, if I weren't a compromiser, that sounds terrible, right? Um, I don't think I've had it, I would have any friends. We would always go where I wanted to eat, we would always do what I wanna do, right? If, in a family, you would always go where you wanna go on vacation, you would live where you wanna live, and uh, if there's no give and take back and forth, um, Life would be pretty hard to not have any compromise. Uh, I, I, I would never vote in any kind of election. If I had to vote for a perfect candidate, I have to compromise and pick the one that I think is going to be best for the culture. It's, it's about compromise. It happens in business. Uh, it happens certainly in politics. It even happens in the life of the church. Um, we compromise on all kinds of biblical things. Um, the temperature in the room the color on the walls, the kind of carpet, right? And you see how silly it gets when people don't compromise at all. It just leads to all kinds of chaos and division, and it's a huge problem. And yet you know where I'm going. There is a place where we can't compromise. Um, Think about medicine for a moment. Uh, When I get medicine uh, from the pharmacy or medicine from the drugstore, I want the medicine to actually be what it says it is. Because my health, even my life, might depend upon it. Some of you are old enough to remember. I was in middle school in 1982 uh, when we had the Chicago Tylenol murders. If you wonder why we have the sealed Tylenol now, like so hard to get off you have to have a buck knife. Um, and we don't have the caplets that break apart, it's because of the Tylenol murders. That was what the catalyst was back in 1982. I faintly remember that. I want the medicine to be the right medicine because I don't want it to make me sick and I don't want to die. My life might depend upon no compromise medicine. Well, when we're talking about Christianity and we're talking about salvation, we're not talking about life. We're talking about eternal life. And one thing we don't want to have happen is for the truth about Jesus and who He is and what He's done to be compromised in any way. We want it to remain pure. It is as it reads on the label. Not only does life depend upon it, eternal life depends upon it. And that really is what's going on in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, which is where we're going to be this morning. 2 Corinthians six fourteen to 7 to 1, it's all one section, one thought, and the Apostle Paul is calling, in effect, the Corinthian church, and certainly by application, us by extension, to not compromise. To not compromise on the gospel. Compromise in all sorts of other ways, but do not, no matter what, compromise when it comes to who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. The Corinthians are flirting with disaster, right? They're listening to fake pseudo-apostles who are saying, well, yes, we believe in Jesus, but it's a different Jesus. Yes, we believe in God, but it's a different God. Yes, we believe in salvation, but it's a different kind of salvation, different way, it's faith and works. And, and the apostle Paul draw, draws the line in the sand, and, and he's not going to say, well, you can just have it both ways. Yeah, you can welcome me back, but you can keep listening to those characters. He draws a line in the sand, and he says, no, you have to separate yourself from them, no compromise whatsoever. And that's 2 Corinthians 6. So we're going to look at 6.14 uh, through chapter 7, verse 1. And I want you to notice some things as we work our way through this. Notice there's going to be one primary issue at hand. Okay? Don't, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers in spiritual things. That's the gist. But what he does, and it's masterful, and I'll get excited. I just have to tell you I'm going to be excited. <laughs> Is he amazingly takes The Old Covenant world, sacrificial system, priesthood, Israel, temple, the Old Covenant world, the types and shadows, and he uses that same language to say, we're in the New Covenant. What we were anticipating has become reality. This is what we've all been waiting for, and so all the more reason, a million times more, don't you dare compromise. Because we have the greatest reality ever, the reality we've all been waiting for, is where he goes. So, let let me digress for a second. So, last Sunday, I'm not going to repreach the sermon, it's going to be different, and we're going to get done with the text, Lord willing, but the weirdest thing happened last Sunday. I wish before I left, I would have said, I'm not feeling well, I apologize, we'll pick it up next week. But that's what happened. It was bizarre. So last Sunday, great morning, great night of preparation, everything, good sleep, clothes out, everything, got a workout in. I love to do that on Saturday. It just clears my mind. I'm ready to go. Uh, Sunday morning, come early because my boys were setting up for the picnic, and so we're here early, got through all my notes, all the things I needed to do. New membership class was awesome, full house, fun in there, great dynamic. I'm having the time of my life Come in here and one thing leads to another and I can't think right I can't think straight and it's just weird, I'm paying attention to all the weird things I don't normally pay attention to and I'm having a hard time with my notes and then the waterworks come, I was, I mean I sweat all the time don't get me wrong um, I'm a sweater um, <laughs> but it's like faucet for my face and I, at that point in time then it just gets worse I thought, I gotta, I, I gotta be done so I basically pushed the eject button and walked out and walked to my office and was like totally humiliated. Worst sermon ever. I want to die now. What in the world just happened? So that's my confession to you. Uh, I wish, wish I would have told you that I didn't feel good. So um, Anne May, bless her heart, had bought the pastor's peaches, fresh peaches. Oh, I went in my office. I got one of those peaches out of the box. I went in the pastor's restroom, washed it, and stood there in the restroom and just snarfed it down. I didn't eat breakfast last week. So dumb. So today it was like the blueberry protein, kale, smoothie, cinnamon, vanilla. I am ready to go. So if I break down today, who knows what's wrong. But anyway, sorry. It is what it is. It's good to be humbled sometimes, but not very often. <laughs> it was the worst. Oh, I turned around and looked at Mike Grimes and he said, when you turned around and looked at me at the end of the service, I thought, oh no. <laughs> and the nursery was like, well, you haven't even taught them yet. I'm like, sorry. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14. We probably should, I wasn't planning to reread it, but let's go ahead and do it. 6.14 to 7, one. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Verse 15. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord, or in the fear of God, excuse me. Right away, in verse 1, he comes out swinging. Excuse me, verse 14, our first verse. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's talking about partnering with those who don't affirm the same Christ. Okay, He comes out swinging because he calls them unbelievers. So remember, in chapter 11, these are people who talk about a gospel, they talk about a Christ, they talk about the Spirit, but they're all different ones. They're different takes, And so he says, you know what? There isn't different options. They're just unbelievers. They don't believe in the one true God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, those guys, don't think of them as different kinds of Christians. They don't just go to a different denomination with some different emphases. They actually get Christ wrong. And so don't think of them as brothers and sisters, actually. And you need to not be unequally yoked with them. Spiritual partnership is what he's calling for. You need to separate from them when it comes to spiritual endeavors. It's very strong, it's very potent, very powerful, um, kind of a no compromise kind of text. But let's be clear, it's in our context of five and a half chapters about the truth about Jesus that's wonderful. Those who don't affirm those wonderful things, he says, are unbelievers. So this verse has been used by lots of people to kind of just be anti the world around them, anti the culture around them, Uh, and and that's not what he has in view, okay? And we'll say more about that, but just realize, and we get it wrong, We, we compromise on the gospel where we shouldn't, and then we don't compromise on all these other things where we actually can compromise. I guess it's just the nature of sin. But, but here, clearly, clearly, five and a half chapters, it's gospel truth about Jesus. Don't compromise on that. Come, be, be, don't, don't partner with those guys. They're unbelievers. And here comes the rationale. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? I mean, he's really thumping the, the pseudo-apostles on the head. Lawlessness. Lawlessness. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? There's another thump. He calls them darkness. What accord has Christ with Belial, a title used by the Jews for Satan? He's saying they belong to Satan. Or what portion or share does a believer share in common with with an unbeliever? Again, calling them unbelievers. What agreement has the temple of God with idols, calling them idols? He wants the Corinthians to see things clearly. This is going to be hard for them because these people have become their friends. And by the way, it would be okay to be their friend when you were doing non-spiritual things. But they're saying, we're with you when it comes to Christ. And Paul says, you got to make a break. And and if we think this doesn't relate to us, we're, we're totally crazy. Because we get asked and we're appealed to all the time to do Christian things with those who actually aren't Christians. And we're called to unite around all kinds of things. We are as a church, you probably are as individuals. Uh, and it's cost me sometimes uh, and been quite the rub. So, but again, we've seen the beauty of Christ for five and a half chapters. You go, well, if that's, it's what we've been waiting for, I guess I'm willing to do hard things. Then he says in verse 16, for we are the temple of the living God. Again, I ask you to look for that old covenant verbiage applied now in a different way, because we're talking about new covenant realities. We are the temple of the living God. We we, the church together, there's individual dwelling as well. We are the most holy place where God dwells. Really? That's what he's saying temple in the old testament the unique dwelling of god among his people and now he's saying that, that that's not bricks and mortar that's the church it's a spiritual reality and this never would have been said of the jews they go to the temple he says christians you are the temple it's gone from something good and great to something even better and we get this confused. We think somehow the physical is always better than the spiritual. Well, we don't follow the storyline of Scripture into the New Testament. Actually, the physical is good, but it's a type and a shadow. The spiritual reality is what we were waiting for. This isn't lesser. This is greater. We are the temple of the living God, in a sense. I want to say, are you kidding me? I mean, this, this relates back to what he's been saying in chapter 3, where he's talked about the Spirit of the Living God. This is 3 3, uh, the Spirit of the Living God, uh, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That's New Covenant Jeremiah 31 talk. 3 6, he says we're ministers of a new covenant. See, that matches with what he's been saying. If this is the new covenant we've been waiting for, now we're not going to go to the temple. We are. But you see, that, that, that causes us to say, if we're the temple, we, we, we need to be protected. Makes me think of John 1 and John 2, right? John, in John 1, one fourteen, right? Um, when Jesus comes to earth and he literally, he, he dwelt among us. And literally he tabernacled among us. He tented among us. Well, he's using Old Testament concepts for the tabernacle, which predated, it was a unique dwelling of God, and then you have the temple. Well, John 1, tabernacle, Jesus, unique dwelling of God among His people. John chapter 2, if you destroy this what? You destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. He's talking about Himself, something greater than the physical. Don't tell me that Jesus isn't greater. Christians... He's the greater one. And now we go post-crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, sending his spirit uniquely, new covenant kind of realities. Even think back to the Lord's Supper. This is the new covenant, right? And now we have, we are the temple. We're not going to go there, but in Revelation chapter 21, this will become a greater reality in our experience in the days ahead. It's exciting stuff. This is Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28. This is a unique spirit dwelling which makes us the temple. Verse 16 goes on to say, As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He, 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 he's connecting dots. Okay, dots, maybe, maybe you don't have the dots to connect, but I'm going to help you have the dots to connect using that old testament verbiage old testament old covenant verbiage and he's applying it to the new covenant church saying spiritual reality is actually what you've been waiting for but you better keep it safe if they were supposed to keep it safe and we read their history and we go oh there they there they go again not doing what they were asked to do well, we should learn from that and realize we're actually in a better more Significant kind of place. So, verse 16 is actually quoting Leviticus 26. He's using that great old covenant language, but now he's talking to new covenant people. We know that because of chapter 3. But here's a dilemma it's not really a dilemma. The passage he's quoting from Leviticus, if we go back and look at it in its context, is very conditional. If you do these things, Israel, and if you're faithful, then I will. Okay? And the Apostle Paul's using the same verbiage and he's making it clear because he connects it to Christ. You don't have the conditionality or else... Because the conditionality has been met in Christ. It's amazing. Amazing. I won't take the time to reread it. I don't remember what I said last week. Um, But I referenced it. But in Leviticus 26. So again, just so you're following me on this. Our chapter 6.16 is is a quote from Leviticus 26.11 and 12. Okay? So it's quoting Leviticus 26.11 and 12. Well... In Leviticus 26, 14 to 18, you've got the or else's. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, I'm going to choose another place. If, uh, you, if your soul abhors my rule, so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, and he just goes on to say... My words, you're smoked. You're in a lot of trouble. See, that's the original context of Leviticus. Old covenant reality. Now we're in the new covenant reality because of the work of Christ. You don't have the threat. You don't have the or else's. Because we have the one who suffered for us. Was judged for us. It really, really is quite astounding. If I read, again, we're not going to read it all, but if I read our text, realize it's from Leviticus, that has threats. If you're not perfectly obedient. And then I go back to chapter 5, what we've been learning in, in 2 Corinthians, it becomes magnificent. Back, back to chapter 5. 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, not anyone who does all of the commandments perfectly or else, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is united to Christ by faith, If anyone, broad, 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 if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I mean, it's meant to be in in distinction. Do I use distinction or contradistinction? Or is that? Anyway, I don't know. It's meant, right? It's, It's meant to be different. It's the or else you could be part of the covenant people of God. And now it's not the or else. It's if anyone is in Christ. The old has, oh, we already read that, 18. All this is from God. See, he's provided Christ so that this can be true for us in Christ, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That is not the flavor you get in Leviticus, not counting their trespasses against them. Here it is the flavor because Christ bore our sins. He bore our trespasses. The great substitute. Then he says in verse 21, which is maybe the best verse in the Bible, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or maybe even 514. I think 21 is even greater, but 514 to go back to the top of the bracket for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. How about this? That one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. One has died for all. One has experienced the judgment for all. Death is judgment. One has experienced the condemnation for us. Therefore, all have already faced the condemnation. So anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. I mean, it just just doesn't get any greater as far as an aha moment and go, Oh, yeah. And by the way, then, this is why sometimes we use a there's a label for what we try to do at Omaha Bible Church. We, we call it redemptive historical preaching or redemptive historical teaching. So when we are learning about Leviticus and we're studying Leviticus and preaching a sermon in Leviticus, we don't pretend to not know how it's fulfilled in Christ. We say, this is true, but you know we're Christians and so we know that this is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. We have the big picture now, which causes us to even appreciate our Savior even more. And hopefully it motivates us even more to say, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, people who would reject that. It's quite amazing. Let's keep going. You guys okay to keep going? I'm not going to have a breakdown yet. We're going. This This is like the best stuff. Verse 17 says, Therefore go out from their midst, And be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. He here is referencing, again, Old Testament, Isaiah 52, verse 11. Leave Babylon. Your priests need to do what the priests are supposed to do. Don't touch any unclean thing. He's using all the verbiage there, and now he's applying it to the church, to Christians. I think I can make it really simple, though. Touch no unclean thing. I alluded to this in passing last week, but in Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, there's no such thing as something unclean. Because of me, because of Christ, there's no such thing as something unclean. He makes all things clean. It's not, about the, uh, it's not about the physicality. So it's amazing to use this verse in the context of chapter 5 and 6 of Second Corinthians. The very one who makes all things clean, the fulfiller of it all, he's the one whose gospel we need to keep separate and distinct and not compromised. See, so you need Christ because Christ, you need Christ's gospel to be pure. You need to not be unequally yoked and compromised because in Christ is how you have all things clean. This is absolutely amazing to consider why he's using that and that he is using that here. Probably don't have time to get into Isaiah 52 too much. Um, He's using Old Testament verbiage, making the same principled point about spiritual realities, but it's actually fulfilled in Christ and it's connected. Okay. We doing okay? Maybe just quickly before we transition, 6 uh, 2 ends with Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Great verse, sounds awesome, would look good on a plaque on your desk, I know. Um, motivates for us for evangelism. But as I mentioned when we studied that together, he, he seems to be speaking uh, uh, about history and redemptive history because we have old covenant, we have fulfillment of the obligations in Christ. This is what we've been waiting for. Today is the day of salvation. Well, yeah. So let's, let's keep the message and the reality clean, pure, and pristine, or we won't have anything to proclaim. We'll just be like the faker apostles. It's fulfilled in him. The greatest thing prior to the consummation is this. Okay, now we're going to move on. It's going to get a little complicated, but we're going to have fun with it. I'm going to put on my teaching glasses um, and, and help you work through a passage that needs a little, needs a little extra attention. So I hope it's helpful. It says in verse 17, partially through 17, then I will welcome. And those are the kind of things that make me go, hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. Then I will welcome. What? It kind of gave, gave me, made me look kind of cockeyed, like, what? That sounds conditional. That, that sounds kind of old covenantish. And everything here has been new covenant-ish to make up a word. That sounds like we'd better be faithful or this is all a house of cards. So I wrote down some steps of kind of what went through my mind. Step 1 was What about chapter 5? All from God, God in Christ reconciling. Christ became sin for us. That that seems weird. My my second step was to go back to Isaiah 52. And Isaiah 52 uses language where God saves. He he delivers them. Uh, He he calls it good news two times in Isaiah 52. Gospel news. Uh, In Isaiah 52, He, God redeemed. God brought salvation using those exact words. Uh, Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mounts are the feet of Him who brings good news. That's, That's quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 10. In Isaiah 52, the moral imperative comes. It comes in verse 17. I know you're not there now. After the redemption and deliverance. Because I've saved you. Because I've delivered you. Because I've done all these things for you. Now I want you to do the right thing. But it's not in the form of a threat. It's New Covenant-ish. Redeem, now do the right thing out of gratitude. And Isaiah 52 is where he's quoting. So that, that was... Good to see step three for me in trying to think this through is chapter seven verse one says these things are promises doesn't doesn't they're not threats they're not conditionalities these are promises step four for me I think I already wrote this down sounds like old covenant not new question mark question mark question mark well that's where I started as well no I didn't that's different. Step five for me, I think I'm about done, I think it's a five-step plan, Um, was to take a closer look at the wording. So you get the Greek text out. and Then I will welcome you. Well, he uses a word translated then in the ESV as a word for and, and it can be conditional, but it doesn't have to be conditional. In fact, I would suggest the most straightforward way to take it is not conditional, it's and. And I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's just part of the deal. I did all this for you, and here's what's going to happen for you. And that's why if you have a New American Standard, a New International Version, a King James, I don't think I checked New King James, it doesn't say then. It's a translation choice. And so I think the ESV chooses to translate it, weighing heavily on how it Seems from the Old Testament, but I think it's a bad translation. You can literally translate it just as easily as the NAS, the NIV, and the King James, and. So if you're a right in your Bible kind of person, I think the Greek text would favor, the context would favor. It's not conditional. That would actually put us back in the Old Covenant. So I'm gonna go ahead and say it should be translated as the other translations have done it. And, and I will welcome you. Verse 18 says, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. There's no ands, ifs, or buts about this. This is this is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. 2 Samuel 7:14. I realize you don't have it known by heart, but lots of Bible students who have been Bible students or Christians for very long, they know 2 Samuel 7. Anybody, what, kind of, what covenant's there? Don't make me a liar. Somebody just said Davidic. That's the Davidic covenant text. The, the, the promise that's made to David and his family to have a kingdom that will last forever. It's, it's more new covenant talk. And it's not fulfilled in his son Solomon either. But he's referencing that. The throne and a kingdom forever. Jesus is called the son of David. Matthew one one, Not to mention Psalm chapter 2. Verse 14 of Second Samuel 7. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Paul's no doubt referencing that. I'll be a father and you shall be to me sons and daughters. Well, he uses the plural because ultimately if it's Christ the representative, the son who fulfills it, Psalm 2 says he does, Um, Romans says he does, Acts says he does. It's fulfilled by the son, but he's the one who brings many sons to glory, (laughs) many heirs. Paul's just expanding the verbiage theologically because of what he knows to be true from the New Testament. Hebrews 2:10: "Many sons of glory." Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 17, "Fellow heirs with Christ." Paul does another interesting thing from his text, and he says, "And daughters." So if there needs to be any clarification, the sons who are the many sons of glory are actually daughters too. So let's make sure we're clear on this. So he, he adds to that. It's sons and daughters, so nobody's mistaken. So if you're in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, you're a part of that. That should be protected. That should be kept pure. Maybe he's referencing Isaiah 43 verse 6 when he adds daughters to that. But regardless, his point is, that's a great, 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 verse 18, great, 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 well-known, even if not that many people know it here today, covenantal promise of the Davidic covenant, ruling and reigning forever. And he's connecting the dots. Therefore, don't compromise. It would be insane for us to compromise. Don't be unequally yoked with those who would deny the truth about that one who brings us and makes us sons and daughters. We're at the last verse, I think. Since we have these promises, I wrote unmatched, three exclamation points. We have these promises, the promises you've just told us about, linked to chapter 5. Since we have these promises, they're ours, beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Again, using Old Covenant language to describe a spiritual reality, bringing holiness and completion in the fear of God. And then what I wrote down was, since we have the promises, dot, 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 let us cleanse. See see how it works? We have the promises, then we want to do the moral imperatives. It looks a lot different looks a lot different. That's why we say things like this in Christian circles. We want, to, we want to obey out of gratitude. Since we have these promises, cleanse yourselves. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers in spiritual endeavors. Classic text. Great text. No fear of condemnation. We want to cleanse ourselves. Okay. Okay. Let's talk just for a few moments about application. Let's start with the obvious. It's about the gospel. It's not about cultural fundamentalism. Okay? Lots of angry fundamentalist preachers have tied this to, therefore, burn your CDs. Therefore, you know, on and on the list could go. On and on and on the list could go. First and foremost, we've got to see he's talking about the truth about Jesus versus some other version which isn't the truth about Jesus. Don't partner with them as if they're Christians because they're not Christians. As I mentioned last week, I know I mentioned it in some way, even if it wasn't understandable. In the old covenant world, he would have said, Leave Corinth and go to Jerusalem, to the temple. But they are the temple. We have no reason to believe he tells them to leave Corinth. And Corinth was a pagan town with lots of pagan people. So he doesn't seem to be saying, let's start a commune or let's start a monastery or you got to do that. And I referenced last week as well. He says, "If it doesn't bother your conscience and it doesn't bother somebody else's weak conscience. Buy the food sacrificed to idols. There's no such thing as an idol anyway. So, he doesn't seem to be targeting that, and calling for Christian grocery stores, okay? Or Christian, you fill in the blank. Doesn't seem to be what he has in mind. I know one Christian business owner who told me that because of this passage, they would only ever hire Christians. And I thought that was odd. But if there's such a thing as a Christian business, no compromise. But he's not addressing a Christian business. It's up to you and your conscience how you run your business if you're a Christian. But his point here is the church and the gospel can't touch it, okay? Uh, think, of, think of Romans 13. We, we, we support the common secular government by paying taxes, and they do all kinds of things we might not want them to do. But in Romans 13, you give to Caesar what is Caesar. Mr. Big, I almost said something I probably shouldn't have said, um, describing him. It wasn't a swear word. It just wasn't nice. Caesar is a bad guy doing bad things. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Romans chapter 13. Well, that that causes a bit of a compromise. I don't really want to support that. but I Anyway, we can get deep in the weeds on all these kinds of things. But at least do the high ground. Um, Usually, often this is referenced in marriage. Okay? And I think appropriately so. Right? Because Jesus himself says what God joins together, let no human being separate. So we don't view marriage as merely a secular thing. So if you're a Christian, you shouldn't marry a non-Christian because you'll be unequally yoked in a spiritual endeavor. So that's a good, legitimate application. I complain about it a lot because we don't do gospel first. But that actually would be a legitimate application to, to think this through. Marriage is a spiritual kind of thing. Paul goes on to say, if you're already married to an unbeliever, then you stay married. And that, I mean, there's all kinds of questions that come about. But Matthew chapter 19, verse verse six, is the one um, I was referencing. Well, I think the list could be long. Um, some matters are issues of conscience and what we choose to do and what we choose not to do. Um, oh, by the way, if the church were called to transform the culture. I don't think so. I think the church is called to preach the gospel, and hopefully that has an effect on the culture. But Omaha Bible Church doesn't have a byline in its budget for transforming Omaha. Okay? But some Christians think it's the Christian mission to not only preach the gospel, but also to transform the culture and make the culture Christian. If that's true, I don't think it is. If that's true, then we are going to have all the Christian stuff. And, we only, right? and now all of a sudden, we're going to apply this verse to all kinds of things because it's all spiritual. But in my mind, I have categories for th- things that are common kingdom and unique spiritual kingdom. And so I can get together with a Muslim. I can get together with an ancestor worshiper. I can get together with a Jehovah's Witness. I can get together with a Hindu and do all kinds of things. Go clean the park, right? Go rake somebody's yard. Go, I could do all kinds of things with those human beings made in God's image. But if it's a spiritual endeavor, actually I can't. As one famous um, theologian said not too long ago, he was speaking at BYU and he made it very clear that they're together on social issues. Many social issues, but not on the gospel. He said, while we won't be in heaven together, we may be in jail together. I appreciated that he did it because I thought he was going to go there and compromise and say we all believe the same thing. And he didn't. And I appreciated that he didn't do that. So the, 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 the list is endless when it comes to application. But if we can just remember the main thing is the truth about the new covenant reality of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, that we are the temple, so we're not going to compromise that. I think we're going to honor Christ, and we're going to pray about the other stuff and that as well. But let's at least start with the high ground. Thank you for listening. Hope you have a great day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for the fact that you are a God who reconciles and forgives sinners like us. Thank you for the fact that um, our great desire is to have the gospel be proclaimed, to be uh, kept safe and promoted and understood. Um, Lord, give each of us wisdom to understand how to navigate this, uh, even as the Bible would refer to it spiritually as Babylon. This is not our home. We look forward to the Jerusalem that will come from above. But until that time, help us to navigate and do do so in a way that would honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.